Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> Thank you, Grant. Well, I want to share with you this morning uh, a tragic yet supernatural thing. For months now, this Sunday morning has been set aside by the leadership at Oak Hill as a transitional worship service. What that means is it's one of those services where we try to move seamlessly between two preaching series. In this case, to move from our series in Romans, which has been going on for almost three years, to our Advent series as we begin to look forward to celebrating Christmas. And Grant and I briefly talked about the ideas that connect those two uh, series, from the foundational truths in Romans to the, the coming of Jesus in the Gospels. And we'd each separately written down some ideas about how this might look. We hope to nail down a theme on Thursday this last week when we met as we always do for worship planning, and of course, it was that very morning that the school shooting at Saugus High School took place. Before that meeting, I had been sitting in my living room with Tanya, glued to the local news that was coming at me on the TV, and, and frankly, in a, a state of mild shock, I think. It's one thing when you see a mass shooting on the news, you're always sickened by it, but now to see that it's happening right in our own backyard, hard to believe. And as I was trying to absorb all the facts coming at me, and I'm, and I'm watching the screen, and I'm seeing sheriff's deputies running around this campus that I've been on and know with guns drawn, and I'm seeing students being wheeled out on gurneys. In one case, paramedics running with a gurney to the ambulances. My mind just began to, to race about our church family and and. Images started coming into my head. Whose kids go to Saugus High School? And, and who in our church family lives in Saugus who might be in that neighborhood? And are there going to be families that, that have specific needs? And, and how can I somehow uh, bring peace and comfort to, uh, to a group of people who are now obviously upset and going through chaos and tragedy? It was a rough morning. Anybody else? It was a rough morning. And it was filled with mixed emotions. First, there was great relief and joy when we found out that the Swift boys were, were safe. Uh, and then to find out that the Steels and others who live in that community were locked down, that was good news. But then I sort of got overwhelmed with this heavy heart for all the people, our neighbors. The Bible talks a lot about our neighbors, right? These are our neighbors who were now dealing with this incredibly difficult thing and some neighbors who will never be the same. You think about the families of those deceased students. You think about the other wounded students and their families. And lest we forget the mom of the shooter himself, who must be going through indescribable guilt and pain, even as we sit here this morning. And so all that was going on, and then Grant and I sat down for our worship planning meeting about two and a half hours later to plan this worship service, and it was very clear very quickly where the Spirit of God wanted us to go this morning. And we praise God that we had set this aside as a transi transitional service, and now we knew exactly what we needed to talk about. Question, does Romans inform our understanding of things like school shootings? Absolutely. Does the arrival of the Savior help us as well? You bet. For in those two con concepts, those two series, we see both the sickness of mankind and we see the remedy for the sickness. Recall what we summarized just last Sunday in Romans chapter 1, how people think and behave apart from Christ, including, tragically, a teenager like the Saugus shooter. Listen to 
what Paul writes. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. And in the list of sins that follow are, among other things, wickedness and murder. We may never fully know what was going on in the life of that young man who decided to bring a handgun to school and I guess randomly shoot his fellow students. But there is no question as we sit here this morning that darkness had overcome his heart. And when that spiritual darkness sets in and and hope is extinguished, there's no limit to the type of violence and evil that man is capable of. And so while we're shocked by the, the suddenness of it and we're certainly shocked by the locality of it, those of us who know scripture shouldn't be surprised by the unrighteousness that can be produced by men and women who are spiritually lost and have no hope. Natural man is gravely sick. He is thoroughly depraved. He is selfish to the core, and he is a slave to sin and unrighteousness. That is the sickness. And God's response, really the message of Christmas, is this. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son into the world. He became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested to us through faith in Him for all who will believe. And now we declare with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That is the remedy, folks. It's the only remedy to the sickness that we've seen this week. The only remedy mankind has been given to overcome the darkness that pervades our hearts and our minds. So with that as the backdrop, there's two things I want to I do this morning in the time that we have. Number one, I want to do our best to try to wrestle with the problem of evil in our age, to maybe address some questions you might have as you sit here this morning. How did this happen? Why would God allow this to happen? And then secondly, to talk about what we can do moving forward, how we ought to to think about this, how we ought to respond to it, not just to this shooting, because the next evil is around the corner. So how do we prepare for that? What ought we to be doing? So grab your Bibles. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and just look at the verse 1. We're going to read a big chunk of Scripture this morning. To me, there's nothing more comforting than just sitting in God's Word, right? Ephesians 5, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 21. Paul writes this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you, And gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and make melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Amen, huh? I'm the light of the world. Jesus declared in John chapter 8. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, most of us are familiar with that very famous statement, but many of us don't know the historical context in which it was declared. In the preceding chapter, John tells us that at that time, Jesus was in Jerusalem for a particular Jewish festival, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And it was on the morning after the last day of that feast when he spoke about being the light of the world. Now, why does that matter? Well, the night before, tradition in Judaism was that there was a great ceremony called the illumination of the temple. And what that involved was the lighting of four massive oil lamps in the temple courts. What these were were massive golden menorahs put on top of posts as as high as 75 feet tall and lit so that the entire city would be glowing with light. And it was to remind the Jews about the time when the pillar of fire had guided Israel in their wilderness journey. But picture the glow from these four massive lights and edges of the temple, not just lighting the temple, but the entire city of Jerusalem. And as these torches burned brightly, the men of the city would go out there and they would dance and the Levites would come out and they would play their cymbals and their tambourines and they would blow trumpets. It must have been quite a scene the illumination of the temple. So imagine that now. Jesus, the very next morning, comes to the Mount of Olives and then comes down into the temple and he's standing in the very place where these torches the night before had been lit. You could still smell the oil and the fire in the air. And now he looks at the crowds and he says, I am the light of the world. You could not have missed the symbolism in that day. If you follow me, you'll always walk in a brilliant light, just as these torches lit up the city last night. The kind of light that overwhelms the darkness. It takes it over and it illuminates your path. What a promise, right? And then amazingly, we look at Scripture and we know it doesn't stop there. Jesus has conferred that same designation and that same role upon us, those who trust in him. You are the light of the world, Jesus said on the Mount of Beatitudes. So if you're found in Christ, and if you're a member of his body, then you reflect and radiate 
his light in this community, in Saugus, you reflect and radiate his light here in Stevenson Ranch, in Valencia, in Castaic, wherever you live, wherever you play, wherever you work, wherever you go, you reflect and radiate his light. And and know this, this is not just for pastors and elders and deacons and ministry leaders. Every single believer carries this designation and this role. We're to shine like stars, like those torches in the middle of a dark world. Now, look at verse 8 back in our text in Ephesians. See how Paul now builds on Jesus' words. Verse 8, he says, For you were formerly darkness. Guys, like everybody else, you were once walking in darkness, fumbling around with no hope in the world. But now, he says, right? Two favorite words in Scripture, but now. But now, having been brought into the light, you are light in the Lord. So what now? Walk as children of light. That's what you are now. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, put your faith in him alone, not in your works, but in him alone, you're a child of light. You just need to walk according to that identity. Now, considering what our community has just gone through, what I want to do is talk about how a, children, how a child of light, how children of light ought to think rightly about the problem of evil. Because evil definitely visited this community on Thursday. If we're going to be able to help our neighbors process through things like school shootings and frankly through other things, cancer diagnoses, car accidents that take lives, terrorist attacks, so many things we could name. If we're going to help them process through it, we as believers first have to firm up our understanding of why these things continue to happen in our world. Do you feel prepared this morning as you sit here to have those conversations with unbelievers in your life? I hope so, because right now there's a window of opportunity that's open for us to have really good conversations, and we ought to be, we ought to be praying for gospel conversations to take place right now. So let me start with a few obvious but really important facts from Scripture. Number one, God is sovereign over everything. Write it down, highlight it. It's the answer to almost every question that comes up in Scripture, right? God is sovereign. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we can't make this mistake of trying to explain away evil by saying, well, God's only sovereign over the really good things, but when bad stuff happens, well, that was outside of his control. No. God ordains everything that comes to pass. Otherwise, we nullify his sovereignty, true? He's utterly sovereign, and yet, number two, evil still exists. And that became painfully obvious on Thursday morning in Saugus. So how do we explain that? God is sovereign, evil exists. Well, first of all, we have to define what evil is. And just a side note, I'm going to treat this relatively quickly and within the bounds of Scripture. So for all of my philosophical friends out there, this is not going to be a full treatment of the subject. So take a deep breath, okay? Because I know some of you guys are already like, oh, yeah, bring it. This is a practical instruction. If you want to get deeper than this, we can talk about it later. As Christians, we often make this declaration. We say evil is real, and that's true. However, we have to remember that evil is not a physical thing, and it's not a created thing. In fact, the best way to understand evil is as as a privation. It's the absence of goodness, or it's a lack of goodness. That's what evil is. So anything that falls short of the standard of what is good 
is then considered evil. Now, obviously, when you talk about that, that means there's a spectrum of evil, right? Telling a single lie is an evil. True? But its ramifications might be benign compared to a double murder, like we saw this past week, where the ripple effects of those types of consequences render that type of evil obviously much more severe. But evil's not a thing. It's the absence of goodness. And that raises another question. Well, then, how do we define goodness? And that's where the theist and the atheist are most at odds. We would say that goodness is only defined by a universal, timeless, objective standard. In other words, the very word that's been breathed out by the God of the Bible. The atheist would say that goodness is a social construct, meaning societies and people groups get together and they decide what is good and evil. But of course, that means it's a constantly changing definition, which to me is irrational. We could have that discussion some other time. For us, in the beginning, God made everything and called it what? Called it good. So there was no absence of goodness in the creation. There was no lack of goodness in the creation, and that includes Adam and Eve, doesn't it? So God had no hand in creating or authoring evil. We know that it came into existence at the fall. Now, does that mean that the advent of evil surprised God? Uh, I just couldn't see that coming. No, sovereignty tells us that nothing surprises God, right? Remember, even before Eve fell into temptation, there was in the garden a particular tree. What was that tree called? The knowledge of good and, and evil. And the serpent's sales pitch to Eve was that when she ate the fruit, she would become aware of what was good and, and evil. So not only was God not surprised by the advent of evil, he, we have to acknowledge, this is a tough one, he ordained that evil would come into existence. And that's a tough truth for us to handle because many of us have been personally affected by the manifestation of evil in our world. But the opposite conclusion is actually much scarier and probably more painful, that God is not in control of evil at all. That's scary. That evil is somehow reigning outside of God's control and restraint. That is truly frightening. So God made everything good, but he also ordained that evil would come into existence. We've got to make sure we understand those two things. Now, the two primary accusations that are made by our enemies in relation to this discussion is, number one, that if evil exists, God must not be all-powerful. He must not be all-powerful. That he's not able to fix the problem of evil. But the Bible, of course, tells us otherwise. God is all-powerful. He's sovereignly chosen not to remove evil from our world. And that's his prerogative, isn't it? But now we come to the second accusation that comes out of that. Okay, if God is all-powerful and he still ordained that evil would come into existence, then he must not be morally good. And that's one we have to address. The underlying assumption there is that if evil exists at all, one smidgen of evil exists, then God can't be morally good. Otherwise, he'd wipe that out, wouldn't he? But is that true? Can God permit man to act sinfully and still be morally good? Now, this is where the discussion turns to man's will. And you've heard me say many, many times, our wills are not totally free. And the reason for that is you cannot have, on the one hand, an utterly sovereign God and mankind have a totally free will. Those two things cannot go together because one will take priority over the other. 
God's sovereignty trumps our will, doesn't it not? Does it, does it not? Yeah, that's it. And we see that happen in Scripture. We see God moving the will of man according to his sovereign rule. But still, I'm convinced that we have been given some measure of freedom under God's sovereign hand, meaning we do make very real, real choices in time and space. I hate the term free will. It's a really inaccurate term. It's an unbiblical term. What I use, and many of you have heard me say it, we have limited self-determination. Limited by who? By God, by his sovereign hand. And the reason I believe we've been given limited self-determination is because of one thing. At times, we choose to sin. Isn't that true? God never wills that we sin, and yet we do. And he doesn't destroy us. We're glad about that, right? He never approves of our sin, yet he permits us to sin without intervening. And so that tells me a few things. It tells me that God makes allowance for the evil choices of mankind. And then, this is the cool part, he allows for the evil choices of mankind, and then he shapes them into a sovereign decree. Now, how he does that, I don't know. That, that's a mystery beyond, that's way above my pay grade. But he allows for the sinful choices of mankind and shapes them into his good and perfect will. And we have a great example in Scripture of this, Joseph. The archetypal example of this. God permitted Joseph's brothers to sin against him in a terrible, terrible way. He chose not to intervene and spare Joseph all of this pain of slavery and being treated very cruelly. So does that raise the question, does, does that mean God wasn't good in the situation of Joseph? According to the atheist, if, if God doesn't intervene and stop him from being enslaved, if, if God doesn't intervene and maybe, I guess, wipe out his brothers and save him from that evil, then God can't be morally good. But Genesis 50, 20 gives us an answer. Joseph says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to produce this result, which was the salvation of the, is, of the Jewish people. Huh. So people mean things for evil, God doesn't intervene, turns around and shapes it into good. By the way, is Joseph alone in this? Is Joseph the only biblical character that was morally sinned against? Almost every character in the Bible suffers greatly. Have you noticed that? Listen, if, if we alone were suffering on this earth and we opened up our Bibles and life was just really peachy keen for all the biblical characters, we'd have a problem, wouldn't we? There would be an inconsistency. But we see over and over again, God's greatest servants sinned against greatly. And he doesn't intervene. God hasn't promised a pain-free, tragedy-free world for even his most devoted servants. What he has promised to his children is something that Grant read earlier. That somehow in all of this, he will work together for good. All of these circumstances for those who love him. That's the promise that we have. Not that we'd be spared every pain and every tragedy, but somehow God will turn it into good. So in summary, here's what we learned. God has no hand in creating evil, but he's ordained its existence in our world, and he permits men and women to sin against each other. 
And then he shapes those wicked choices into his good and perfect will in order to bring about a desired result. And the result he brings about is good. Now, the atheist is going to object to all that, isn't he? I mean, I've talked to guys, they say, they'll scream at me and say, absolutely not, I don't buy that. If God's going to be morally good, he must stop every single act of evil in the world. To which I ask them, what would that require? What would it require for God to stop every single bit of evil in the world? And the answer is, it would require the elimination of all human freedom. And my next question is, is that what you want? That's an important question. When you want to tell a lie to slip out of some trouble or some circumstance, would you like God to intervene and force you to tell the truth? Probably not. If you wanted to look at pornography, would you like God to disable that website or maybe just come down and fry your phone or computer in that moment? Probably not. The fact is the atheist doesn't want God to intervene in his personal evil, He'll insist that God intervene to stop every other evil that he doesn't like. In short, he demands that God act according to his moral standards and his personal desires. He desires to be God himself. By the way, there'd be another downside if God removed all human freedom. If man has no freedom to choose evil, he likewise would have no freedom to exhibit authentic mercy or compassion or love. And very few atheists are willing to accept that side of the deal. So does God restrain evil today? Absolutely. How do I know that? Because man isn't as bad as he could be. Man could be far worse than what we see in our world. It's not pretty out there, but it could be worse. Can you imagine if God completely took his hand of restraint off of our world and allowed Satan to do whatever he pleases? Would there be anything left of this earth or of mankind? Probably not. Nuclear war, whatever it might be. We'd be, we'd be goners. 2 Thessalonians 2.6 actually speaks to this. It says that God is restraining evil today, but there's coming a time at the very end of days when he will remove his hand of restraint. And what comes about? Great tribulation. Great tribulation. Now, will we always know the why behind the mind of God of all this? See, what we should, what we should expect to see is, yeah, God coming down and restraining some evil, but not all evil. Will we always know the mind behind this? No. Usually not, because we see so dimly right now, it's a matter of trusting God's promises, trusting his word, and trusting his character. It was Spurgeon who once said this, when we cannot trace God's hand, we must simply trust his heart. That's good advice. We're not given every answer. We're not given every answer. It's tough. All that brings me back then to the shooting this week at Saugus. Here's what we can say for sure. Number one, God was not caught off guard by it. He knew exactly what was going on, and he was at work in the midst of it. Number two, we can praise God that it wasn't worse. This shooter ran out of bullets. Lives were spared. That, too, falls under God's sovereignty. Number three, we can be sure, according to the promises we see in the Bible, that what that young man meant for evil, God will shape into good for his desired results. There is a divine reason behind everything. What's that reason? We don't know for sure right now, but I'm telling you, time and eternity will bear out 
God's goodness in this incident. And we need to be able to deliver that promise and that comfort to other people. Fourth and finally, we can trust that evil will not have the last word in our universe. Why? Because of the victory that Christ has won on our behalf, right? If this life were all there is, if this was it, if, if we, we were given 75, 80 years, whatever it might be, and then we turned to dust and that was it, the problem of evil would be really, really difficult. But we know there's an eternity to come. That life really isn't about this small number of years compared to all of eternity. For now we live in a groaning fallen world where evil things happen, but someday all of that evil will be snuffed out. It will all be done away with. And the scripture says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. All that pain and suffering that we've endured here on the earth, it will be wiped out and we will rest in comfort and peace and joy with him forever. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that we need to deliver to lost people in this community, even this week. So that, again, that's not a full treatment of the problem of evil, but it's important for us to get that in our heads, let it sink down into our heart, and for us to be able to pray for gospel opportunities to share truth. It's not easy. It's not easy. And you know what? When you talk to somebody who's grieving over something like this, the problem of evil is not the first thing you go to. The first thing is what? I'm here for you. How can I love you in the midst of this? How can I care for you? What do you need from me? I love you. Those are the words we need to be sharing right now. Amen? Let's go back to our text now in Ephesians 5, and, and we'll finish by saying, where do we go from here? What ought we to be doing as we live in this world that still is peppered with evil all the time? Well, there's a lot we could say about Ephesians 5, but I want to focus our attention. Look at verses 15 to 17. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. He starts with a therefore, right? So what's the therefore, therefore? Because we are now children of light, Paul says. Because you've been brought into the light, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Friends, here is the truth. You are not promised a tomorrow. But Jeff, I love the Lord. I, 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 I serve the Lord. You're not promised a tomorrow. And that realization, which we usually we sort of relegate that to the back of our minds, it comes quickly into focus when tragedy strikes, or we have to go to a, a funeral, or, or whatever it might be, there are no guarantees that life won't change suddenly and drastically at any moment on any given day. Why? Because the days are evil. The days are evil, Paul tells us. That means two things, really. First of all, it means that time slips away. Time moves very quickly, and you can't get it back. It slips away quickly and easily. It's here and then it's gone. And before you know it, all the opportunities that you had to love and serve in that time are also gone. The psalmist says, man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. James agrees, your life is a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And I know I'm talking to a pretty young audience here. And this is a difficult concept to grasp when you're in your 20s or your 30s because you feel so young right now and so invincible. <laughs> yeah. 
It's going to move fast. I don't know why I'm pointing at you guys. Take it from me and the ladies up front here. It feels like just yesterday I was in my 30s. And then I went to sleep and I woke up 20 years later. I don't know where it went. The days are evil. Time and opportunity slip away quickly. The second meaning of evil days relates to our spiritual surroundings. When you walk into the world, never forget that you're walking to an environment that has been deeply affected by spiritual darkness. Going back to our list in Romans 1, you should know that all around you are people filled with these things, unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, insolence, arrogance, and disobedience. That's the spiritual environment we walk into every day in this world. So be careful how you walk, Paul said, right? That just seems just reasonable and logical. Be careful then how you walk. Be extra sensitive. Be alert. Be aware of the spiritual warfare that's going on all around you. Most of the time it's going to be invisible, but as Thursday showed us, sometimes it manifests into the physical world in the form of hatred and extreme violence. Be aware that it's happening. It's real. The darkness is real. Now, as I say that, Paul's not advocating that we all become paranoid, that we walk around constantly paranoid. You know why? Because paranoid people are generally cynical and unloving. They're hardened. And that's the opposite of what we're supposed to be. The word careful here in the Greek relates specifically to being discerning. Not paranoid, but discerning. That's a really important word. What does it mean to be discerning? It means to perceive things, right? Perceive them and to recognize them. What it requires is that we pay attention to what's going on around us and judge things rightly. Pay attention to what's going around and judge things rightly. What this means is we don't just stumble into our day as Christians. This is a big part of what Paul is trying to tell us. Be intentional as you walk into your day. There are spiritual things happening all the time. See, some of you woke up this morning. You, woke up, you wake up every day without considering what's before you. You look outside and you go, boy, the day looks pretty harmless to me. You're not paying attention. You're not understanding what's going on. You've been lulled into a false sense of security. You sort of wander through your day, no real plan, no kingdom vision, not discerning all the traps and the minds that have been set in your path. And so you stumble into things all day long. Be careful, Paul says. Have a plan. Consider your steps. Walk in wisdom, not as, a, not as a fool, he says. Now, the thing I'm most interested in you seeing is the phrase at the beginning of verse 16, making the most of your time. As children of light, we're to view time as a precious gift from God. It's a precious gift. 24 hours in a day we get. That's 1,440 minutes, 86,000 seconds. In every single day. And we're to make the most of every bit of it. That concept certainly becomes more tangible to us when we talk about a, a young life being cut short, right? Or we go to a funeral and we have to deal with our mortality. That's when time really comes into focus. But honestly, it shouldn't take tragedy for us to recognize that we need to be good stewards of our time. The Greek, ver Greek verb there for making the most literally means to redeem something. So you often hear this phrase, Christians ought to redeem the time. What does it mean to redeem something? It means to buy something back, 
specifically related back in the days to the marketplace. So the picture that Paul's drawing for us here is of a merchant who is diligently going through the marketplace, searching for all the best bargains. Some of you are really good at this, by the way, right? You're searching for all the best bargains, looking for every opportunity to jump on it as soon as you recognize it. That's what Paul wants us to do related to our kingdom vision and our kingdom work. We're all familiar with the idea of a sale that happens for a limited time, right? That's what's implied here of time. It's a window of opportunity that we're given each and every day. A window of opportunity. Open now, but soon closed. We need to be ready when that window opens. That's what Paul wants us to tell us here. Here, Here's a a paraphrase of what he's saying. As you and I go through life... We're to diligently look for kingdom opportunities that come our way. And when we see one, we shouldn't hesitate. We should jump into that opportunity before that window of time closes. Because you can't get it back. You can't get time back. It's precious. So if you stumble into your day, you're missing things. If you plan your steps, if you're careful how you walk, and you've got kingdom vision on, you're going to see opportunities. The window opens, we jump in before it closes. Are are you getting the picture? This is so important. A couple of examples. You have a chance encounter tomorrow with somebody you didn't expect to see. Open window. How are you going to choose your words in that conversation? A hint that there's a brother or sister that needs encouragement. Window opens. Kingdom work. You've got your eyes on, you jump in there and you you provide encouragement. A care need that suddenly pops up. Somebody has a need. Window open. Jump in there. A conversation that seems really normal and then it suddenly turns to spiritual things. Open window. Be ready. A way to go above and beyond to show the love of Christ to somebody that needs it right now. Open window. Are you alert to those types of... This is what Paul wants to ask. Are you alert to those types of opportunities? Are you watching for them? And then are you prepared to jump in when you see it open up? See, for some of us, redeeming the time, it starts with just stop wasting time. Stop being clueless. Stop wasting your time. Time is a stewardship responsibility. It's like our bodies. We're supposed to steward our bodies, and we're supposed to steward our money that God gives us. We're supposed to steward our our marriages and our children and so many more things. Only a certain amount of time has been given to you by God. We're to manage it with care, and we're going to give an answer someday for how we stewarded our time. So this is a serious matter. A wise man once said this. I, I love this quote. If people threw away their money as thoughtlessly as they throw away their time, we would think they were insane. I think that's true. Even as children of light, we've been known to let minutes, days, hours, weeks pass thoughtlessly without really understanding what's going on. And and, and look, today, especially for you millennials, there there are more chances to waste time than any generation that's ever lived on the earth. Am I right? So many distractions, so many diversions. We've got Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Netflix and video games. The list goes on and on. And have you noticed how clever the enemy is in dragging you into those things and keeping you there so that you waste time? You know this. Every time you finish a show on Netflix, what happens? The next show starts queuing up. 
You've got like 20 seconds. Well, that's by design. They're going to lock you in. Ah, another hour. True? What about you finish that video on YouTube? What happens? Here comes the counter, right? Here it comes. Next one. They want to grab you before you jump out. You, you watch a cable news show, and then you see one host hand off the, to the next host, right? You're like, oh, another show. Okay. Guys, this is all by design to keep you distracted, to keep you diverted. And, and we, we fall prey to this because, again, we're not, we're not thinking. We're not being careful. And then we, we look up two or three hours later, and we're like, where'd the time go? We're all guilty. It's easy to make wise decisions with our time, right? Is it easy? That's sarcasm. It's not. Nobody does this easily. Nobody does this particularly well. This takes discipline. It takes thinking it through. It takes having a plan. When Paul uses the word redeem here, it implies that there's going to be a cost to it. Good time management brings with it a cost. It's going to cost you something. It means having to say no to some things that you probably enjoy so that you could say yes to things that are ultimately more important. Is that going to feel good? Probably not. But we're children of light. Right? We're children of light. We keep dying to ourselves in the time that we're given. We keep dying to ourselves in the days that we're given for the sake of Christ and others because the days are evil and the time is slipping away and our windows of opportunity are closing. You'll never get it back. As verse 17 says, it comes down to understanding what the will of the Lord is. And that's, by the way, that's not anything mysterious. It's, it's, it's what God has revealed to us in his word. We know what it says. It's not a mystery. Brothers and sisters, we're children of light. So let's think in the light. Let's think in the light. Let's think in accordance with what Scripture tells us about, about God and about life in this world and about the existence of evil. Let's make sure that we walk carefully each day, paying attention to what's happening around us, always being ready to redeem the time that we've been given. Let's not waste the resources that God has graciously given to us, but in these evil days, let's prioritize the right things, the advancement of God's kingdom. Amen? So understand why evil exists. Know that it's going to continue to exist and things may get worse. But know that we have a calling in the midst of that to be children of light in a dark world. Now, I'm excited about next Sunday. We're going to dive into our Advent season. Five Sundays in all. Question, were the days leading up to the coming of Christ full of evil? Absolutely. Absolutely. Think of Rome's occupation of Israel. Think about the oppression that the Romans laid upon the Jewish people in the first century. Consider the wickedness of King Herod and all the violence and the threats and the fear of that day. Guys, one thing never changes. One thing never changes the condition of man. Same sickness. Same sickness on the day before Christ came to the earth that was present on Thursday of this week. Same sickness, same remedy. Only one remedy. So over the next five weeks of Advent, we're going to look at five critical aspects of the Christmas story. The cosmic setting, the prophetic announcement, 
the powerful players, the ordinary characters, and the brilliance of the incarnation. Let me encourage you guys right now, today, invite a friend to church. Every, every poll has said, every survey has said, people are most open to coming to church during the Christmas season. They're going to get a good gospel message here. They're going to hear the truth of Scripture. So invite a friend. Perhaps there's a window of opportunity opening up right now. The days are evil, but maybe there's a window right now for a friend of yours, a family member, who needs to hear the gospel. Will you take a risk and invite him to church? Let's pray. Father, um, I thank you that, again, you haven't left us alone. You've given us answers in your word about why things happen on earth. And Lord, even though some of it remains mysterious, Lord, we're grateful that you've told us that you are always at work and you are always shaping things into your perfect and sovereign will. And you're always working all things for good for those who love you. So Father, we rest in that this morning. And at the same time, Lord, we want to lift up those who have been so affected by what happened this last week. Father, we want to pray for the families of those two students who were killed. Lord, we can't even imagine the pain that they're going through right now. And so, Father, we know that you are the God of all comfort, that you are the God of peace. And so we ask, Lord, that that might be an opportunity, Lord, that we can step into, but more importantly, God, that you might cause them to turn to you for that peace, that you might do a work there. Lord, we pray for the mother of the shooter, who I understand lost her husband years ago and now has lost her son. And in the midst of that, feeling the guilt of what she might have been able to do or what she might have been able to see to prevent that. Lord, I pray that you would attend to her in a very special and supernatural way that you would reach her heart, God, and bring people alongside of her that might help in this situation. Lord, we pray for the Saugus community, for strength. We pray for the resources that they need to, to hold one another up in this difficult time. Lord, we praise you for the work that you're doing in the midst of all of it. Lord, we stand back and say, Lord, it's not about our will. We know you're good. We know you're sovereign and that you are doing great things in the midst of it all. So we praise you for your sovereignty. We praise you for your goodness. And Lord, will you, show us, will you show us how to manage our time? Will you open windows of opportunities for us? And by your spirit, give us the strength to step into those things. May you be glorified in our community, Lord, as you work. In Jesus' name, amen. What a great reminder for us.